morning. Our scripture today is from Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> I want to uh, just read again verse 6 uh, that Jamie uh, just read, that last verse. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Loving God that we may live. Uh, this only comes to those who have a circumcised heart. Uh, to be circumcised in your flesh was the sign of the covenant for God's people. You can read about that in Genesis 17. Uh, there God is saying, you either cut off your foreskin, obey me in this, or you'll be cut off from among my people. And as compelling a symbol as that was, physical circumcision in itself, it wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. It pointed, however, to a deeper cutting that needed to take place. God's people... All God's people, men and women, needed to experience circumcision, but not a circumcision of the flesh, a circumcision of the heart. This is a better circumcision and one that must take place, not just for Israel, but for every person who would love God and live. Let's set up Deuteronomy 30 with a little bit of background. If you've been reading along with the you're the Bible with the church. Uh, you, you probably have a good idea about where they are, what's going on, but I always find a little background helpful. The Bible Project is a great uh, website and resource, and I borrowed this from them. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was at Mount Sinai for one year, entering into a covenant with their God. Then they had the disastrous road trip through the wilderness, and the exodus generation disqualified themselves from entering into the land promised to Abraham. So Deuteronomy begins with Moses standing in front of a new generation, explaining the Torah, the law, God's law. Deuteronomy, the way we should see this, is a series of speeches from Moses where he's calling the next generation of Israel to be faithful to the covenant with their God. So it's near the end of Moses' life. Uh, Israel is at the entrance to the promised land, getting ready to go in. Moses gives a, a farewell speech we could say, to the people of God, these people he's been leading around the wilderness for the past 40 years, ever since the day they left Egypt. And now what would you say in this moment if you were Moses? 
Uh, you'd probably uh, leave aside anything trivial or unimportant, right? You'd focus on what really matters, and that's what Moses does. He focuses his words on Israel's need for faithfulness, and he knows they'll need to be faithful because he knows they're going to blow it again. They'll have to return to the Lord again and again precisely because their past has been littered with unfaithfulness. They have a track record for that. Just a few highlights of their unfaithfulness. We'll, we'll start with the people of Israel. Um, often we read their grumbling, their complaining, their longing for Egypt, which seems insane to us because that's where they were enslaved. But that's what you do when you're unfaithful, and they were. And we think, well, yeah, but that's just the, the common person in the congregation. Well, the, the leadership's going to do better, right? You have Aaron, Moses' brother slash priest. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and, and uh, Aaron fashions an idol, a golden calf. It just popped out of the fire. And then he leads the people to worship it and says, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. What do you call that? Unfaithful. You think, okay, but Aaron's no Moses. What about Moses? He'll do better. Well, Moses, instead of speaking to a rock as God commanded him for water, he strikes it with his stick. And yet, because God is gracious, God waters the flock of his people through this disobedience. But it's still disobedience. Moses, because of this, is not himself able to enter into the promised land. The promised land that right now he's preparing the people to enter. These kids get to go in. But he who's been leading them for 40 difficult years will only get to see it from a distance. Why? Because he was unfaithful. Moses, the one who spoke with God face to face, the one who God chose to lead Israel out of Egypt, the one who met with God on the mountain and his face was so bright from the encounter that he had to wear a veil so people could just look at him and talk with him. That man was unfaithful. And if Moses was unfaithful and Abraham before him was unfaithful and Adam and Eve before them were unfaithful, what hope was there for the average Israelite? I think there's good evidence in our, our reading to suggest that they probably swung back and forth between forgetting how wretched they were and being full of despair when they remembered. Somewhere between creation and the fall, something went wrong, and that defect, that bending of our hearts back on ourselves, away from God, has been part of humanity's story ever since. It's why God's people, like we uh, read in, Israel, in Deuteronomy 30, people who actually know God and love God, it's why they have moments of walking away from Him, why they sometimes choose death instead of life, why even when God is more than enough, his people complain about the menu. They hit rocks with their walking sticks when a simple word would do. And they worship baby cows made of gold. That's what a calf is, right? A baby cow? I, I was pretty sure. <laughs> I'm from Missouri, but it was no farm. <sighs> See, these people, they were circumcised. They received the law. They were God's people. And when things got really bad, they'd repent, and God would receive them back and continue to love them and lead them, but something was still off. As you read their story, it's just, it's off. Not something in God, but something in the human heart. Their foreskin 
was gone. That's true. But the God-spurning deadness in their hearts was still there. Their love was in fits and starts. Their obedience ebbed and flowed. Their history has shown by this time that their obedience displayed and God's obedience demanded were not connecting. They were missing each other. They've not been able to live up to their end of the covenant, but that didn't release them from their responsibility to do so, to be faithful. Now, that didn't mean they needed to try harder or feel worse. Those don't accomplish anything. What they needed was for the Lord, the one who brought them out of Egypt and given them his law. They needed that Lord to act again, once again, on their behalf, to do for them what they could not do for themselves. They needed the Lord to do what he promises he will do in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, to circumcise their hearts so that they would choose to love him, finally, wholeheartedly love him and live They were circumcised in the flesh. They could say, uh, see, we're God's people. Here's the proof. But what they needed was a better circumcision. And that's the circumcision of the heart. There's uh, three questions that we'll answer uh, this morning about this circumcised heart. You'll find them in your outline. First, what is a circumcised heart? Second, how do you know if you have a circumcised heart? And then finally, how do you get a circumcised heart? So what is the circumcised heart? Well, there's several ways the Bible talks about this, several metaphors it uses. Uh, to have a circumcised heart is to have the law written on your heart. So it's not just an external command, but it's deeper than that. It's written on your heart. It's within you. To have a circumcised heart is to have a new heart in place of the old. To have a circumcised heart is to be born again. These all point to the deep change needed inside of us so that we might love God for God and live instead of the alternative. Uh, we're in Deuteronomy, but as you've uh, been tracking with us on Sunday mornings, it's, it's nearly impossible to not jump to the New Testament, to Jesus, as we're reading in the Old. Um, John chapter 3, Jesus there talking with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And the reason I want us to, to look there is it's this very same promise that God gives his people Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. And listen to John 3, 1 to 7. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things you're doing unless God's with them. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about his need to be born again, his need to have a circumcised heart. And this is pretty incredible that he would say this to this man, given who Nicodemus is. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say Nicodemus is the best that man could do. Consider his credentials. He's a Jew, so he's a member of God's people covenant family. 
Not only that, he's a Pharisee, so he's like a pastor to the people, committed to a righteous way of life. He's not just any old Pharisee. He's called, in verse 1, a ruler of the Jews, so he's got some clout. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, Israel's ruling council, so he's a leader in the community. It's likely that he's from one of the wealthier families in Israel, too, so he's got this high social status. A little bit later in verse 10 in John 3, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So he's a prominent teacher, one of the top dogs, like Billy Graham of of preachers today or the Francis Schaeffer of theologians in his day. Nicodemus is moral, he's upright, he's noble, he's one others would come to if they had questions about the scriptures. He was the ideal Jew, honoring God, loving neighbor, he was the goal, he was the template, be like him. He, it seems, had it all. What more could he need? Life. That's what Jesus tells him. Nicodemus needed to be born again, to be born of water and the Spirit. Some think that's a reference to baptism, but more likely it's Jesus' way of reminding Nicodemus that God promised a new covenant. And one of the places we read about this new covenant is in the prophet Ezekiel. Again, you can just listen along or you can turn there. In Ezekiel uh, 36, verse 24, we hear the Lord. He's speaking to his people, Israel. They're, They're in trouble again. It's just a common story. They're in trouble again due to their unfaithfulness. And the Lord says to them, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I'll be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. See, water and spirit. With water, I'll sprinkle you. I'll I'll cleanse you from all your uncleanness. Spirit, I'll give you a new heart, not a stony one like the one you have, but a heart of flesh, a new spirit. I'm going to put it within you so that you can actually obey me, cause you to obey me. Jesus, like Ezekiel before him, is talking about a new covenant when God will cleanse their sin and fill them up with his life, a new heart, a new spirit, a circumcised heart so that you can love God and live. And back to Deuteronomy 30, that's what Israel needed as they were getting ready to enter into the promised land. They didn't need more law. They didn't need sharper knives. They needed a new heart. See, you can choose to circumcise your flesh. You can choose to cut your foreskin off. But only God can circumcise your heart. Only God can make your heart new. Only God can write his law on your heart. Only God can cause you to be born again. You can't cause yourself to be born again. But we must, all of us, Jesus says, we must be born again. Deuteronomy makes it clear, Deuteronomy 30. We must, all of us, we must have a circumcised heart. That's the need of everyone. And that leads us to our second question. How do you know if you have a circumcised heart? If it's the need of everyone, if you can't love God or have life without it, then you need it. How do you know if you have one already? How do you know if you have a circumcised heart? Well, your life's going to be marked by a genuine love, 
a, a growing obedience, and that's going to result in a different you. There's going to be changes in your life, and those closest to you especially will notice this. They'll see the change. They'll hear the change. You'll have a different flavor, we could say. You'll have a genuine love for God, not because just simply because you ought to, or that's what good Christians do, but because God's just so lovely you can't help yourself. In fact, you won't want to help yourself. You'll want to just surrender and give yourself more and more fully to this God. If you have a genuine love for God, Bible doctrines, theology, will not just be abstract ideas to you. They'll still stimulate your mind, but your heart will sing. You'll rejoice. A genuine love for God means you'll love God not just for what you can get from Him, heaven, blessing, even forgiveness, but you'll love God simply for God's sake because He's wonderful and beautiful and to be in relationship with Him, your Maker and your Redeemer, is better than anything you could possibly have or imagine. When that's your experience, loving God from a circumcised heart, uh, not perfectly, but enough to keep you coming back to Him again and again, if that's your experience, then when you hear God say, obey me in this, it won't sound like harsh instruction from a strict parent, but, but a wonderful invitation that you'd be crazy to turn down. Is this always easy, obeying God? No. But it's a step toward the light and away from darkness. It's a step in the direction of life and away from death. And the more you walk toward God, the easier it gets. The more enjoyable it becomes. Your will starts to will it. Your want starts to want it more. If you have a circumcised heart, your have-tos and your uh, want-tos, your duty and your delight, they start to converge. They start to come together. And that's the relationship God wants from his people, where our have-tos and our want-tos or our get-tos come together. John Piper has a great illustration of of having one without the other. He says, imagine it's my anniversary, I get my wife Noelle a dozen roses, and I pull him from behind my back, and she says, Johnny, which is what she calls him. Johnny, I love them, thank you, sweetheart. And I say, of course, Noelle, it's my duty. <laughs> I don't even have to ask the question, how do you think that's gonna go over, right? <laughs> Not good. So there is a sense, husbands tell me, there is a sense of duty or obligation in how a husband treats his wife. There is. And some days that is what pulls us through. Uh, amen. There's a bunch of silent amens out there. <laughs> amen, amen. I, I see, I know, I know. But if that's it, if it's just duty, just obligation, there's no heart in it, there's no passion, no pleasure, no delight for the other, for your spouse, how horrible, how cold, how lacking. But if you have a new heart, a circumcised heart, then what you ought to do and what you're glad to do, they converge more and more. They overlap. Your growing obedience is empowered by a genuine love. 
Uh, John Newton is the uh, author of Amazing Grace, as you know. He wrote that, that hymn. He wrote a lesser-known hymn called We Were Sinners Once As You Are. And here's how he describes this bonding together of love and obedience, of duty uh, and delight. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. That's really good. Is that your experience? Have your pleasure and your duty come together to part no more? How would you know anyway? Right? How, do you, how do you evaluate something like that? Your heart, it's really hard to get a handle on your heart. I think one way we can help ourselves in answering this question, if our, if our want to and our glad to have come together, is the way that we react to Scripture. 1 John 5.3 says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. That's really hard for some of us to hear, isn't it? God's commandments are not burdensome. How does that hit you? When you hear that, his commandments aren't burdensome, do you think yes and amen, or do you think, come again? (laughs) His commandments are not burdensome. It sounds like uh, verses 11 to 14 of our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who's going to ascend to heaven and bring it to us that we might hear and obey it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who's going to go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. He's talking about those that have a circumcised heart. If you have a circumcised heart, if God has done this grace for you, given this gift to you, then that comes with new capacities, new abilities to love, a new obedience to prefer others more than yourself. And you think, when did that start? It's when you got a new heart. When you live that newness out, this this obedience empowered by love, others will see it, especially those closest to you. I imagine you could be thinking uh, one of the following things at this point in the message. Uh, first, you know, I'm confident I have a circumcised heart. Not perfect in my love or obedience, but it's there. It's growing. I- I'm new. God's work in me is undeniable. I've changed in some meaningful ways. Others have noticed it too. I'm new. And you're confident that you're new. I would say, wonderful. Praise God. Keep drinking from the well of, of the gospel. Stay humble. Or you might say, I'm, I'm confident I don't have a circumcised heart. I don't have any idea what you're talking about, this experience of loving and obeying like you've described. I'm here, but I'm, I'm fairly certain, supernaturally speaking, there's not a lot new about me. Well, I would say, praise God, you're here. He brought you here. And uh, good news is coming, so just hold on. Or th- you might be saying, you know, I'm not sure. That I, my history seems to incline me to think there's been something going on in my heart, but, but lately it's been tough, or I, d- I wouldn't want to be overly confident or say nothing's happened, so I'm not sure where my heart is if I have a circumcised heart. And I would say, well, that's okay, you're here too. 
In fact, the answer to our final question is good news for all of us, no matter where you're coming from, because it's God providing for our need. And that question, that final question is, how do you get a circumcised heart? If everyone needs a circumcised heart, how do you get a circumcised heart? And the answer is through circumcision. And you might say, hold up, we just saw that circumcision wasn't enough. How can circumcision now be the way to get a circumcised heart, a new heart? It's because what I'm talking about is not the cutting away of our flesh, but the cutting, piercing, and ultimately destroying of the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. I think that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about when he says in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, that is, no knife in the heart, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that talking about if it's not his cross? Remember, circumcision is characterized by cutting and blood. And when it comes to covenant with God, the symbolism was clear. If you don't obey the covenant, you'll be cut off. You'll be banished, exiled, cursed. You'll die. Cut off from God, cut off from others. And that's a very real danger for unfaithful people. In in Israel's day, in our day. And yet, Jesus, because he's such a wonderful Savior... He took our place and for us was cut, literally pierced in his flesh. He had a crown of thorns pressed on his head, the stripes on his back. He was cut. And the Bible says he was cut off, cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah 53 prophesies. That means he died. But even greater than his physical death, even greater than the lashes on his back, was his being cut off from fellowship with his father when he hung on the cross bearing our sin and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no greater pain for him than that. Jesus did that so that you and I and all who would believe in him could have soft hearts toward God, obedient hearts, circumcised hearts, so that we could experience life. How do you get a circumcised heart? Uh, Not by thinking, oh, I need to get me one of those for reasons X, Y, and Z. it's, It's not that methodical. In John uh, chapter 3, Jesus, after saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again, you must have a new heart, a circumcised heart, he tells us how this comes about. And maybe you remember this. We stopped just short of it, but in John 3, 8, Jesus says, you know, it's like the wind. Like, thanks, Jesus, that clears it up. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Being born again, receiving a new heart, it's like the wind. The thing about wind is we don't control it. We can hardly anticipate its patterns. Wind is a mystery, and so is anyone receiving a new heart. 
But you know what? And I think this is really great. We don't have to completely understand something to benefit from it. Amen? Because we don't completely understand anything. With mystery abounding, with our understanding being incomplete, with all our unanswered questions, you this morning, right now, can still hear Jesus say to you, believe in me, trust in me, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Follow me, find your life in me. And if your response is, yes, I I want that, well, that's evidence that God is at work in you. He's doing something deep in your heart. He's doing what he promised. He's circumcising your heart that you might love him with all your heart and soul, that you might not die, but live. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we give you our lives. May our hearts, our minds, and our desires be yours. May our hands and feet and voices move as you would choose. May our moments and days flow in endless praise. And may your spirit, who is unpredictable and mysterious like the wind, blow upon each of us now as we come to receive from you at your table. Amen. If those who are serving communion,